Hope Church. Right. Good morning, good morning. It is Easter Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes, we can say that here. We'll try it one more time. He is risen. Yes, absolutely. So this is um, this is the central, the the key thing that we believe above all else. Really, is that Jesus is risen. Without that, we don't have anything. Now, Jesus had to die in order to be risen. He had to die on the cross and pay for our sins and pay our debt in order uh, for that resurrection um, to be, to be meaningful um, for us. But for the cross to be meaningful, there has to be the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we're out. We're going we're gonna to look at that um, more this morning. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15 and also in the book of Luke. Um, but it answers that, that question. There, there's that biggest question of all. There's that fundamental existential question of, like, why do I exist? There's that fundamental basic question that every human needs to be confronted with in life. And that question is, why do I exist? What is, what is my purpose? And that leads to other questions of, you know, how did I get here? What happens after here? These are, are questions that, you know, in our world, we, we kind of, people kind of do anything and everything possible to avoid dwelling on them for very long. Because if we dwell on them for very long, then, then it's, it, it creates a necessity for it, for a search. It creates a necessity to search for what is 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 true. To search for what is that. that what, what are the answers to those questions of why do I exist? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And we're so thankful this morning that there are good answers to those questions. You know, so many people in our world today are say, well, you know, we just don't know and just can't really know. But God has revealed truth to us. And we can know. And we can know it with the same level, with the same level of certainty that we know that we are in this, this room or that we are listening to this message from the scripture. Now let's go to the Lord. Um, in prayer, and then we'll begin 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are true and faithful, that you are a holy God, that you didn't just turn a blind eye to our rebellion, to our sin, that in your holiness you couldn't just give us a pass, but a debt had to be paid so that you paid it. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you went to that awful, awful cross and suffered for us. 
And we thank you that you are a risen king, that the grave could not hold you. And that our hope is in you and in your resurrection, that you are a living God. In your name, Jesus, we ask that you would work in hearts and minds today, all across this world. And Lord, we pray that people would hear your truth. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Now I have made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, but which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what is the Apostle Paul trying to remind the church at Corinth of? He wants to remind them of the gospel. What is the gospel? We've been in our, our house fellowship studying the book of Romans, and we keep starting with Romans chapter 1, verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel is the good news of salvation, the salvation of God, that he saves us from our sinfulness. He saves us from the judgment that we deserve. It saves us from being under the dominion and power of sin in our daily lives. And it saves us in the future sense that it guarantees our relationship with God forever and ever. But again, we have to remember that in this gospel, there had to be death. The death of Jesus. It was necessary to pay our debt of sin. Jesus said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the cross, again, is where we see that, that perfect intersection, that God is love and that God is holy. God is holy. His holiness demands justice. And without the full payment of sin, there is no justice. You want to say, well, why the cross? Why, does, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God just, you know, snap his fingers? Couldn't God just say, you know, that we're all forgiven? In order for it to be, in order for his, him to stay true to his essence and character, the debt had to be paid. God is love, and that means that God did not want to leave us separated from him in our sins, but that he wanted to be, for us to be reconciled to him. And that was the path of reconciliation, that Jesus would die for us in his love, in his grace, and that we would enter into that reconciliation through faith. Now he says, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. So holding on to the gospel that was preached saves us from wasting our lives. 
from wasting our lives on trivial things. We live in the present power of the gospel. We are to live in the present power of the gospel. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to live. That we walk by faith and not by sight. That we walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And he says, unless you believed in vain, and that belief in vain has to do with the quality of the gospel. That's what he's getting into in the, in the rest of this, of this section. It's about the quality of the gospel. Sometimes, you know, we worry about the quality of our faith. Well, the quality of, the, of our faith, you know, isn't so much the issue. We have the faith of a mustard seed. There's a tiny, tiny bit of faith, but it has to be in the right object. It has to be in the right one. That Jesus, that, that it's worth believing in him. It's worth believing in him. Now, don't misunderstand me. That faith that we have in Jesus will indeed cause a transformation in our lives. A person who truly believes in Jesus will be transformed by Jesus. Like that's God's goal. That's God's, what God's going to be working towards that transformation in the lives of his children. People will complain, oh, you know, Christians this, that, and the other thing. And, and again, we have to balance. I'm not saying you're not going to sin. Of course, we're going to mess up. But a follower of Jesus will not be content to just live in their sin. A follower of Jesus will not, for years and years, just go on with no difference in their life. Eventually, one of two things will either happen. Either the Lord will shorten their life on this earth, as it talks about earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, but their spirit will be saved. Or, that person is going to wake up and start living a life that honors God. Start living a life that honors God. One of those two things will happen. Because God is not content for his children to just wallow in sin indefinitely. Really, we could say it this way when he says, unless you believed in vain, he says, you could say it unless you believe in the gospel that was never worth believing in in the first place. And so he's going to prove that this gospel is worth believing in in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remained until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So this is first importance. That first, you know, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according 
to the scriptures. There's that emphasis. And then that he appeared to these various people. According to the scriptures is of vital importance because Jesus, Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. Jesus is the incarnate word that we read about in John chapter 1. That Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the key character. Jesus Christ is the key character. Genesis to Revelation. In Luke chapter 24, beginning verse 13, this is right after the resurrection. And it says, Now behold, two of them, that's two followers of Jesus, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and were before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Should not the Christ have suffered these things and then entered into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them on all the scriptures the things concerning himself. According to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. That Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. And these prophecies give us great confidence. Because when you put them all together... You know, you can put one thing and, and say, oh, well, that was manufactured. You can put another thing and say, oh, that was manufactured. But when you have a huge string of things written by various people hundreds of years before Christ was born on this earth, how is it possible? Unless he indeed is the Messiah. Verse 28, it says, Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. 
And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. It's powerful. That breaking of bread, as we remember the Lord this morning as we take the bread and the cup. Remember the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and said, do this in remembrance of me. Same way he took the cup after dinner and you know, passed it among them and said, you know, this, is, this is, represents... This represents the body and the blood of Jesus. That bread and that cup are precious to us because they remind us of the cost of our salvation and that it reminds us of the love that God has for us. We remember Jesus as we take that bread and that cup, we remember him with deep affection. We consider our lives in relation to the one we remember when we take the bread and the cup. That Jesus is worthy to be praised. I'm going to go back to that one phrase. You know, did our, not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? You know, their eyes hadn't been opened at that point. They didn't know who he was. But they resonated with what he said from the scriptures. And, you know, it was hospitality that said, hey, come and stay with us. But I think that hospitality had some extra reason behind it. You know, what else might he say? He said, our hearts burned. And that just begs a question for us who say we follow Jesus. Do our hearts burn? When's the last time heart has burned within you for the Lord, for the, th- for the things from the scriptures? Our hearts should burn. And the Apostle Paul goes on in, in verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Paul calls himself the least of the apostles. So he's not fit to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. Remember, he sought its destruction. He sought to have the followers of Jesus killed and thrown in prison, their possessions, their homes taken. He sought to destroy the people of the way. But the grace of God came to him. 
He said this in verse Timothy 1, 15 through 17. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all patience as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all patience as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. That's great hope there. You know, sometimes you meet people who say, you know, I'm too far gone. I've done too many bad things. I've, there's no way God could accept me. Hey, Paul tried his best to utterly destroy all followers of Jesus. Not worse than him. He said that he was the chief of all sinners. Well, if he was the chief, then that means you're not the chief. <laughs> okay? If, he, if, he's got, if he's taken that title, and number one, you, can't, you haven't dethroned him. So, what does that mean then? If you repent, if you're humble before God, if you ask for forgiveness, he will indeed forgive you as well. And just like the Apostle Paul, he will not leave you where you are. He will radically change your life. He will change your life. He will not leave you in that state. He didn't leave Paul to go on continuing a life of destruction of other people. No, he changed his life changed his life. That's one of the great evidences we have of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus is the life of Paul. How does a man go so toward destruction of a group of people to them becoming their greatest missionary. How does that happen? We know the story, the testimony that he gives is that he had a radical encounter with Jesus himself. That that changed him. That that changed his life and his perspective. There are so many people in, in buildings today, I will have the name of such and such church, such and such church, such and such church. And the question is, has Jesus, have you encountered Jesus and has he radically changed your life? If he hasn't radically changed your life, then you may not have ever encountered the true, real Jesus. Maybe you met an imposter. Maybe you met a figment of your own imagination. Maybe you met, made up, met a, a man-made, lesser version of Jesus, a good teacher, a nice man, or some other fable. But if you truly encounter the living Christ, he will radically change you. 
verse 12, he says, in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Paul gives us a problem. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say, there is no resurrection of the dead? So this goes back to even like Pharisees and Sadducees. Where the Pharisees believed there was a resurrection of the dead, and the Sadducees were like, not so much. That's just like a figurative language sort of thing. It's not really real. And so they would get in fights with each other about these things. Paul uses that in one case. But this idea from the Sadducees has, has infiltrated in to the church at, at Corinth among some of, their, of the people there. And they're starting to say, not really a resurrection. So when Paul writes this, he's like, got to go. among numerous other things to correct at this particular church in Corinth, you got to correct this one, because this is big, this is really big. How is it that some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Why is that a big deal? Well, he's going to explain that in verses 13 through 19. But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. And moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep, kind way to say died in the book of 1 Corinthians, Died in Christ, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So he gives us eight reasons, or eight implications, if there is no resurrection. One, our preaching is in vain. Why are we going around telling people something that's not true? Two, your faith is in vain. Doesn't matter if you believe or not. Three, the apostles are false witnesses against God because you're saying he did something he, in fact, did not do. That's also big. If there's no resurrection, then not even Jesus is raised from the dead. So that, you know, there it all goes. Again, your faith is worthless. He's like, got to repeat that. Make sure you get it. Like, without the resurrection, the real, literal, physical resurrection of Jesus, you, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. You are still in your sins, meaning your debt hadn't been paid. You still have a sin debt. Those who died believing this, we have no, we have, they had no hope and we have no hope for them. And then we should be pitied. Well, why pitied? I think we can just make a statement here, I believe it to be true. You'd be pitied for wasting your life. It's something that's not true and doesn't matter. If that's not true, then perhaps there's a, a real truth out there that then you're missing out on. But certainly you've wasted your life in believing something that's not true if, in fact, there is no resurrection. Think about what the earlier followers of Jesus gave up. Paul and many others gave up their positions in society, they gave up their jobs. They lost their families. They experienced physical brutality, hunger, emotional distress. All of that suffering that they encountered, 
as you read the book of Acts and as you read beyond that in early church history, would be for nothing. Lighting up Nero's gardens as human torches, being fed to wild beasts for the entertainment of a wicked world, would be pointless and worthless if there is no resurrection and Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead. But the flip side of that is also true. If Jesus is indeed raised from the dead, then there is value in being lit on fire in Nero's garden. There is value in being thrown to wild animals and being torn limb from limb. There is value in having your home and property destroyed. There is value in being disowned and disenfranchised from your earthly family. There is value in losing your job. There is value in losing all place and position in society. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, any cost that we are forced to pay is worth paying. But if he is not risen from the dead, then no cost is worth paying. We understand how much of an all-or-nothing proposition this is. And though we may not be forced to encounter it personally, we must all be willing must all be willing to lose everything for Jesus. That is part and parcel with being one of his followers. Because when we come to believe in Jesus, we are believing he is the Savior, and we are believing he is the Christ, the King of the universe. And then he then has all authority, and our lives are to be lived in submission to him And we are to be willing to sacrifice all for him as the first followers of Jesus were. So how do do we get there practically in our hearts and minds? When you start with little things, you can start with stuff. Look at your car today if you got a car. Say, God, I thank you that I have this car. It's not above you. I'd lose it for you. Look at your house and say, Lord, I thank you for this house. Lord, say, and just tell yourself the truth. If somebody burns this down and my insurance company will not pay because of the name of Jesus, this house isn't worth more than Jesus. This isn't worth more than you are. Name your job out loud. Say, Jesus, you are higher than my job. And if I lose my job for your namesake, I will praise you. I will praise you. And there we are talking about little things. And then the things that God has given us of great value and that we cherish. Look at your family members, and then you have to say it out loud because, you know, especially if they're not believers or if they're small children. 
say, I love you, and I'm thankful God gave, gave us each other. But you are not more valuable than Jesus, and you cannot have his place. We must be willing to do that. If God's given you a spouse, and, and, and you're with that spouse today, look at your, in your spouse's eyes and say that in your heart. I love you and I'm so thankful gave, Jesus gave us to each other. But you can't have his place. You can't have his place. Because here's the, And here's the thing about it. This is the thing about it. When we have things in their proper order, of Jesus, others, ourselves. Notice I didn't say Jesus, you, or Jesus, me. Jesus, others, ourselves. When we have things in that proper order, we have that right perspective in our hearts, guess who we treat better? Other people, our loved ones, our wives, our husbands, children, co-workers, other family members, etc., etc., just people in general. If God is first, you treat others better. If God is first, we do our work with more sincerity, more passion. We do a better job. God, it's important that God is in his proper place above all. But part of that is even, again, the sacrifice. We have to be willing To lose all? Or do we think that we are somehow deserving of not going through what the first followers of Jesus went through to follow him? Or do we think that we are somehow above what all those who have suffered in his name have suffered for his name? See, we, we, we've got to get over that. In a sense, we have to get over ourselves. And we have to get over the story that we want to write. Whenever that story is not in line with Jesus and his story and his, the part of it that he has for us. We have to get over it. We might have to shed some tears over it. Because some things dear to us may have to die in our hearts. And I know I have to answer this question. I have to ask this question. And, and I, I think we, I know I've got a lot of room to grow in this. But when it comes to our children, we had them in my minds right now. We come and sing these songs for us this morning. But when it comes to our children, what are our highest goals for them? Are they academic? Are they athletic? Or are they spiritual? Are they spiritual? Would we be more upset if they didn't achieve academically or athletically, or spiritually. Which one of those would cause more sleepless nights? 
We need to keep things in perspective and order our lives around the resurrection of Jesus. To order our lives around the resurrection of Jesus. Now verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, sorry, not verse 12, past that, next page. Are our lives wasted? Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So here's that contrast. By a man came death, and by a man also the resurrection of the dead. See, that's why Jesus had to put on, Christ had to put on human flesh and come among us. And he had to do something greater than what Adam did in the garden. See, where, where Adam took the fruit of the tree in disobedience to God. Jesus hung on a tree. To pay for that rebellion. To pay that cost. As in Adam all die. doesn't matter what advances we seem to be able to make as humans. Guess what humans do? We die. We die. We all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. Now we have to be careful there that, you know, it's, it's funny. You know, people, sometimes people take like, like, that verse and go, see, everybody's going to be good. <coughs> Paul, Apostle Paul. Teaching universalism right here. Everybody fine? Come on. Let's read the rest. Even just read all the rest of the chapter. Just read the whole thing. There's, again, God's grace, you enter into it through faith. And that's going to change your life. But in Adam came death, and in Christ comes life. 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and after those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to, the, to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So there's an order of things. There's the resurrection of Christ. There are those who are Christ at his coming. And then eventually the end when all the rule and authority and power on this earth is done away with and the kingdom of God is fully established. For he must reign, verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. So Jesus has already had victory over, over death in one sense and he'll have complete and final victory in that those who die in Christ will all be raised from the dead. We have to remember also what Paul teaches, to this, you know, it's in the same context even at the church at Corinth, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
So it's not like you're in a state where you're of almost like non-existence for how many ever years, decades, or hundreds of years or whatever. No, you are with the Lord. But that body is not done with, and God has the power. Folks, this isn't hard for God. You know, people always ask these questions. Well, you know, what about people who died at sea and then their bodies were eaten by sharks? What about this, that, the other thing? You know, listen, manipulating molecules, atoms, and things like that, not really difficult for God since he spoke the world into existence. It's not really hard for God if you believe that, that there was just God and then there was everything else. It's like, let's... Come on. Now, I mean, now if you don't believe God at all, period, well, none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense at all. So you have to have that basic fundamental position to begin with. But listen to these verses in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. This is at the end of the story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words, for they are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So there's a great contrast there at the end with what Jesus does and who has eternal life and who has eternal death. Jesus is serious about these things. His resurrection shows he's serious about these things. His resurrection shows that he is going to return as the just king. He's fulfilled all the prophecies you know, concerning himself up to the point of his return and the full establishment of his kingdom. And if he, since he has done all of those things, most importantly, he's risen from the dead, then certainly we can trust that he will come and that he will establish his kingdom and he's going to do away with death. And he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more mourning and no more crying and no more pain for those of us who enter into his kingdom. But it is also true that he will judge, and this is serious business. We're going to take Jesus seriously. And it's not just here in Revelation, it's also in his own words in the Gospels that he is going to judge, that he is going to separate the sheep and the goats that he is going to judge righteously. 
then we have a responsibility to inform a lost and dying world of this reality. We have a responsibility to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to be obedient to the message that we were told to go into you know, all the world and make disciples of all the people groups. We are to do that. We are to take that mission very seriously. Can I, can I throw out this morning just a, a thought as I was preparing this message and studying this thing? You know, I, God made us to worship him. You see that, but also I believe in human history and in the, the epic story of God and his interaction with human beings that there's an adventure in that story. That there's an adventure. And even if there's great pain and great sacrifice, it is in the midst of an adventure with God. I think as we study the Old Testament, we see that. I think as we study the life of Jesus and the, the first disciples, we see that. As we read the, the book of Acts, we see that. As we read about the great heroes and missionaries of our, of our faith, you know, men and women, from all sorts of people and places, going to all sorts of people and places, we see that adventure. And, and we're wired that way. God made us that way. He made us to where it's natural that we want some adventure. Now, how does that play out? And, and why do I, you know, there's a couple things why I think that. With our entertainment, we like books and, and movies and things that have some adventure, some danger. We, we like that. We also sometimes like the safety that that's in the book or on the screen and not part of my life. Okay? But it reveals something about us. We find it interesting. Types of games we play. We, we, we initiate some consequence and, and fear of losing and conflict. We put all these things in our games. And all sorts of games. I mean, bringing sports into that, bringing role-playing games or, or games you play on, on, you know, computer, entertainment system, whatever you have. Chessboard. Chessboard. Yep, exactly. You take some risk. You make some moves. See how things go. We like that. We're, we're naturally drawn to that one way or another. One way or another. Now, some of you are like, ah, I don't know. Uh, your romance books, whatever it is. There's something there. There's something there, right? We have the privilege to live in an event, on an adventure with God and to take risks. And while that might be in obvious ways, 
you know, there are flights from Atlanta to Tehran available. You know, there's obvious ways. You can take some adventure. But there's also in your daily life. See, there's some adventure and some risk that God has for you when you speak for his name. At your place of work or in your neighborhood or at your school, while you're getting your education, whatever it is, there's a place for adventure and a place that calls us out beyond our fear because God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. And we're called to participate in that adventure. And sometimes that will have a price to pay with it. But whether it does or not isn't the issue. The issue is God's called you on an adventure with him in some capacity. And are we engaging in that with him for his glory and for his honor? Are we taking any risks? Are you taking any risks for God? Relational risks, emotional risks, job risks, financial risks. If life is safe in every area, I don't know that, I I just don't, when I read this book, I don't see it. I don't see anybody who's living for God where their life is like safe in all areas of life. I just don't find it. If you can find it and show it to me, somebody whose life, they were like 100% sold out to God and you've just got a ton of safety surrounding them. I'd like to find it. I can't find it. Yeah, I like to be safe. I want my family, I want my wife, kids to be safe. I want us to be safe. That cannot be our highest ideal. That cannot be our passion. Cannot be our passion. We're real passionate about some safety. Now, and, and while I say that, I'm talking about risk for the kingdom. You will find no children have to stay in their car seats longer than my kids. <laughs> okay? Or put on sunscreen or whatever. Like when it comes to certain things, I'm just like, we're gonna take we're gonna take some crazy risks, Lord willing, we're gonna take some crazy risks for Jesus. So I, I'm gonna mitigate that a little bit. By my my kids just being like they're not getting skin cancer, like they're they're not going to get that because they're going to be like like white with the amount of sunscreen that's on their their faces and bodies and long sleeves and everything else. I'm going to mitigate that one. See, see, so what I'm telling you is I'm naturally risk adverse with those that I love, but I can't be when it comes to the sake of the gospel. Because Jesus is more important. We can be naturally risk-adverse in everything but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And whatever that gospel and the calling of God causes us or calls us to put at risk. Because that's that big question with the resurrection. The resurrection, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus calls us to an all or nothing life. Around his glory and his honor. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, let me say that again, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ calls us 
to be all or nothing for his glory and honor. And his mission, his purpose, it calls us to be all or nothing. It doesn't do well with Midland. doesn't do well with middle ground. It doesn't do well with being partially invested. That's a miserable way to live. Father God, we come to you and I believe every single one of us and Lord, I'll stand chief in that area of just so many times wanting to be middling. And just stand in the middle. <coughs> Certainly not wanting to be against you, but then also not wanting to be all in. But Jesus, your, your cross and your resurrection calls us to pick up our cross and to follow you. As we break the bread and take the cup, This morning, Lord, I pray that as we take it, that you would reveal yourself. That we would see you as we remember you, dear Jesus. In your precious name, we pray. Amen.